Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing really well. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport and get to know some of the key personalities who work behind the scenes in the sector to provide legal advice and support to those working in sport. Now, today's podcast is uh, a, a, a one that actually complements an article that you'll be able to click to in the bio, which focuses on an important issue, uh, which is of growing concern around the world, which is around sports betting and the sanctions taken against participants uh, for betting on competitions. And it raises a whole bunch of issues around player rights, player welfare, dispute resolution, and a whole other bunch of topics. And now in order to uh, talk about this issue and the author of the article, we have Alastair Campbell. He's an experienced litigator and partner at the law firm level. He works in dispute resolution with a particular focus on sports law and arbitration. He acts on a complex range of commercial disputes, advising clients on complex issues from contractual matters to questions of public law across multiple jurisdictions. Um, He's experienced working in football in particular, which is very relevant to this. And uh, also relevant, he's been described as being clear and pervasive and concise and hard-hitting, which 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 I'm presuming that relates to your work um I hope but the <laughs> I gave the client a fiver to say that <laughs> exactly and uh, uh yeah um right you wrote this article on the, particularly looking at the FA's um cases involving uh, betting on football matches and the sanctions that were applied against participants can you talk to us about one why and why did you want to do this um, analysis? Because it has unveiled some really interesting trends. Um, and then secondly, can you, you know, well, let's do that first and I'll come on to the next question. Okay, sure. So um, at, the start, at the start of the year, uh, I wrote another article for Lawrence Sport on um, uh, some betting cases involving Kieran Trippier and Daniel Sturridge. Um, and in the process of doing that, I did quite a lot of research into betting cases Um and read quite a lot of them, and I noticed uh, that they lend themselves to a kind of meta-analysis. Um, they are categorised into uh, certain types of case, and then you have certain factors which are common to different cases and which are commonly referred to and which aggravate and mitigate the offences that have taken place. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to get that kind of data from each case aggregate it all together and see what kind of trends it kicked out. Um, so the in terms of categorization, the FA publishes uh, sanctions guidance. So a sort of guide to what you can expect to be sanctioned with if you're found guilty of one of these betting offences. Um, so just to take a s- step back, obviously, the FA's rules prohibit participants uh, from betting on football anywhere in the world. So that's participants is broadly defined it's not just players and managers that you might immediately think of but goes down to the security staff and anybody really involved in the game at the club Um, and they're prohibited from placing any bets on football anywhere in the world so uh, a a fairly broad and wide-ranging prohibition and the FA publishes this guidance which says there are six different types of bets as we see it Uh, and they range from a what I call a category one bet, which is 
a bet on football that doesn't involve the participant. So that could be a championship player placing a bet on the Champions League final. They're not directly involved in the game. It's not their league or their team, but it is a bet on football that's prohibited. And then you get slightly more serious going up the categories. So category two is a bet on a competition or a league that involves that player's team. So you might see a player from one team betting on two other teams in the same league, or often it involves the FA Cup. You know, a sort of lower league team places a bet on the semis or the final. They're not involved, but it is a competition that they were involved in. It's a bit more serious. Um, And then category three is a bet placed on one's own team to win. And category four is one a bet placed on one's own team to lose. So that's kind of the most serious uh, of the classic outcome type betting, you know, win-lose. There isn't actually a category for draws, uh, which is one of the things my article uh, points out and suggests that could be drawn up if you bet on your own team to draw. Uh, and and on that, sorry, we might as well start talking about this now. That one of the, you know, can you just talk about, you know, and I know for a lot of people listening, they'll probably get intuitively understand why you shouldn't bet on matches that your team's playing in from an integrity respect. But can you describe some of the other rationale behind, you know, covering, you know, across all football matches? Yeah, I think the principal rationale, and I think the FA accepts that it is a um, kind of quite draconian rule, uh, really. But the, the principle is that a footballer's or an individual's connections within football can be can run deep and be many and various. So going back to the example I described of a championship player placing a bet on the Champions League final, uh, well, you know, maybe he was in the academy with one of the guys and he's in a WhatsApp group. Um, and it's really all about the public's perception of football. And it's all about the public's perception of the integrity of the game. So uh, the FAC is that there's that risk there that the connections run deep and that somehow somebody might get hold of inside information and so the cleanest way of dealing with that is to have this worldwide betting betting ban i should say actually that it applies the world the full complete worldwide ban applies above step four of the national league system so um you know you, you once you get below that the betting rules are less strict um but when you get into semi-pro and pro football that's uh, they think that's when it really, really kicks in. And then the other, the other point to mention was that um, in this, there are categories five and six. Maybe you just want to say, you know, what those are and where they featured or not in your report. Yeah, they they did feature in the report, but they're they're much less common than the other categories, and they relate to spot bets. Um, so that could be a throw in a corner. You know, we've all seen uh, betting operators advertising various markets. Uh, that aren't outcome related that could be a yellow card or penalties uh, you know you can, you can imagine the, the the plethora of markets that are available so those relate to spot bets and category five is a spot bet that doesn't involve the player um, and then category six much more serious is a spot bet that does involve the player um, and when you when you get to category six getting pretty close to match fixing because if a player says I'm going to bet on myself to concede a yellow card in the 50th minute and they go out and concede a yellow card, we're getting into serious match-fixing territory. Yeah, yeah, because it could happen. But as I say, they're they're much less common. And and which were the most prominent out of the, the cases that were published and and, and you reviewed? What were the the the, the sort of the major um, cases in terms of quantity? 
Sure. Well, the, the, the vast majority of cases were in categories two, three and four. Uh, but the most prevalent individual category was four, which is bets against your own team. Uh, so betting on your own team to lose, which I found quite surprising, actually, because that's the most serious of those uh, categories. And uh, you would think that there would be lots of minor bets and then it would filter down to you know a handful of really, uh, really serious bets. But actually, the single largest category was betting on uh, your own team to lose. Uh, so I, I sort of looked at that and thought, that's, that's interesting, and you know, wondered why that might be the case. Um, and the best explanation I could uh, come up with was it's a matter of kind of selection bias uh, in that you go after the most serious cases. You've got your time and resources. And so when you're the FA is often notified by betting operators about players and participants having betting accounts you concentrate your resources on going after the most serious cases so i think that's probably the explanation so so the, what, what we need to know is in order to get confirmation of that theory you would have to or or at least find out more about it we'd have to get the number of cases that are reported from the from uh the betting companies and the inter uh, and the reports that are run so um because isn't it i think i did a <laughs> i did do a podcast years ago with um uh with perform and genius who were uh, uh providing the sort of integrity reports to um to the fa independently to spot these things so again it, you know you put there's it'd be really interesting to get that data then to analyze and say what's the outcome from that data being passed over but you can see that no doubt as well those type of um instances require more more time to investigate as well and not only you know then the more serious ones they probably require a bit more um you know intelligence gathering and so forth yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i think one of the things that was also interesting i found when doing this study was that the the number of admissions that happen in i think out of 100 plus cases that are reviewed there are only two or three uh, in which the participant denied placing the bets. And so what that suggests to me is that the FA is pretty good at its job here, is pretty good at collecting that evidence. Um, and when faced with that evidence, um, participants have little choice but to hold their hands up and say, uh, you got me. Yeah, which is, which is you know, given that the, you know, the integrity of the game is uh, paramount, um, is a good thing and also you should probably save some time and resources as well if you get an admission once you've put together the case um, what were some of the other key sort of trends that you picked out in the report um, well I think I looked at the cases in sort of globally first uh, and obviously we've discussed which cases were more common one of the other things I discovered from that kind of global look at the cases was that there are more and more of them year on year um, and I know the FA is kind of pushing its publication policy so that could be one explanation for that but the kind of most obvious explanation is that there are more betting cases there are more breaches of the rules um, and there's a graph in the article sort of bar charts where you can see it very clearly going smaller to medium to large in the last two seasons there were it started off at five or six cases a season and then in uh, 1920 and 2021 there were 40 cases in each of those seasons um so uh that kind of trend to me is, is on the on the rise 
and that's and that's and that's one of the things that I've always thought that you know we've we've talked about this on on the, uh, the, the, uh, one of our conferences as well, which is one of the problems is once you start to regulate a particular area like this and you start to get more expertise, inevitably you are going to get more cases. But also at the same time, there has been this discussion around the the relationship between sport more broadly, not just football now, and betting operators. And it would never be seen to me with, you know, just seeing today that, that I think the zone are now going to be offering or have said that they're going to be offering um, betting opportunities, fantasy sport, etc., through the platform. That that seems to be the, you know, 101 revenue stream model for, for sports organisations at the moment, right? Because it's, it's guaranteed, you know, you know you can monetize you know, that opportunity, which inevitably means that there's going to be it seems to me there's going to be exponential growth in these type of cases. Yeah, and I, there's obviously a, a discussion going on more broadly about the level of or the relationship between betting and and football. Um, and I, I, you know, I've tried I tried quite hard not to really take a firm position on that because. You want to get instructed? <laughs> well, I was going, I was going to give it slightly different reason, but you, I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, um, but uh, you know, betting is a, an incredibly important revenue stream for for clubs, and particularly in the having just been through, hopefully coming out the other side of the pandemic, uh, that revenue stream is probably more valuable than ever um to those clubs so accept uh, and, and agree that there's a place for that kind of shirt sponsorship and so on in the game and of course you have the other side of the argument it's, it's quite a emotive topic really you have people from the other side saying this leading to addiction um and and all the associated issues that come with that so social issues that come with it and on that point in the report you picked up uh, a number of the um uh defendants was that the right word to describe them i'm trying to think um uh the, the number of the participants who were sanctioned um had addiction problems what was the percentage yeah so i um one of the things i did was look at the aggravating and mitigating factors in each case so those are things like the experience of the participant how many bets they place you know the more bets you place the kind of worse your offense is uh type thing if you're a new if you're a sort of new pro first year uh the offense is mitigated compared to if you're a seasoned premier league player who's had vfa come in a hundred times and tell you not to bet and i wanted to know or figure out how addiction was treated by um by regulatory commissions who decide these cases uh and so it's one of the things i i picked on in each case um and ultimately i found that it was mentioned as a factor, as a mitigating or aggravating factor in about 25, 26% of cases, something like that. And then there were additional cases in which it was brought up and talked about, but not uh, factored into the sanction expressly. Um, so I think it came up in about a third of cases, uh, which strikes me as quite a high number. Um, and there's again, I'm going to sit on the fence, but there's two ways of looking at that. Uh, you can either say it's a high number and that's scary and it's an issue, or you can say, well, these are betting cases. We are going to see you don't, you, you know, they don't include the people who aren't who aren't addicted because they're not placing bets. Um, but I thought it's an interesting statistic for for people to dis discuss and think about. 
it's really interesting to see how this is going to evolve because no doubt there is, you know, in in countries at least where there is regulated gambling, um, and there's provisions by the sport on prohibit uh, prohibit can't say the word prohibiting betting. This um, it's late on a Friday. Well, it's not even <laughs> late, but it's on a Friday, so <laughs> forgive me. Um, there's a seems to be a sweet spot between the relationship, as you're saying, with the betting operators to you know invest and uh, support sport football as well, uh, in particular, um, and then this this spot where you have got the right appropriate regulations in place. Because um, were, were there a bunch of you know as you're reading through the cases, were there a bunch of cases where um, were there any cases where they were just sort of wittingly. Uh, unknow- unknowingly, sorry, um, people betting, not even realizing that they were going to be caught by the regulations. Uh, yeah, there were there were plenty of those cases, or at least plenty of those cases where that was the argument raised by the participants. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so we should say, we sorry, we should say probably on this that obviously this is based on what the arguments put forward by both the <laughs> FA and by uh, uh, the accused. So yeah, we're relying on that data is not necessarily you know completely pure data. <laughs> can't, we can't we, we can't get into the minds of the participants. No, um, but I think the FA has quite comprehensive education programs about the regulations. So um, you know, particularly in the Premier League, the Championship, the upper echelons of football, uh, I would be surprised if a player was able to. Um, to successfully say they weren't aware of the regulations as you get down to uh sort of the Istanbul league and the northern premier and the sort of you know non-league football um that argument starts i think to carry a little bit more weight uh you probably haven't had the fa come in and speak to you face to face there might be a poster in the changing rooms maybe they saw that maybe they didn't um in lots of the cases you see players saying I thought it was fine to bet on football as long as I didn't bet on my own team. You know, lots of sort of category one, category two, less serious cases that comes up. Um, I think there are a couple of exceptions to that that I see I've seen in the cases. Um, one was where a player, Premier League player, said he wasn't aware of the regulations, uh, and it turned out he he was a Spanish speaker and he hadn't been given a translation. <laughs> of the relevant educational materials um and then there was another player who had just been transferred into the uh i don't think it was the premier league but um maybe the championship the upper echelons in any case had just been transferred from um another country where the regulations were slightly different um so that was slightly mitigating in that case Mm. um but sort of english players born and bred I suspect that ignorance of the rules is unlikely to be significant mitigating. Uh, That's interesting. And you've raised a point which I do think is something you touched on in your previous article as well, which is the problem internationally, um, you know, and the lack of consistency there. And if something's come up, you know, I know FIFA are working on this at the moment, but it's a, a tricky one um, uh, that seems to get right. But that could, you can totally see when you know if you expanded this sort of type of research, I'm sure you've got other things to do rather than just sit there and do yeah, do this number crunching. But the um, it'd be really interesting to look at that and see where there are problems that arise. Um, and then you mentioned earlier about the your view on betting on a draw. Did you just want to uh, explain why you think there should be? Because uh, I think you said there was no provisions for dealing 
in particular withdraw cases yeah that that's right um and i think draw cases have been treated in the cases as well with some difficulty uh, you know i'm thinking of a couple of cases where commissions have drawn out the fact that this isn't given its own category in the guidance and said this has made it a little bit difficult for us um and a little bit difficult for me as well uh and so they've ended up treating them as the more serious end uh the kind of akin to betting on your own team to lose because it goes back to the perception of the game and let's say a player's placed a bet on a 1-1 draw you know could be let's say a goalkeeper's placed a bet on a 1-1 draw uh, and is losing 1-0 in the 85th minute they've got a huge incentive then to let in a goal and then it's 1-1 and then it, that comes in well that's, uh, well that's interesting but I'm immediately thinking though but if it's 0-0 you bet on a 0-0 draw sorry it's 1-0 against or yeah maybe it's a 0-0 oh yeah but, but the point is one once someone's scoring a goal you can see why that becomes a higher risk but being a 0-0 draw <laughs> like well, you, might, of, you might you might you might you know you might deliberately scuff a shin a chance uh, yeah. <laughs> um, anything where the participant can have an effect on the outcome that's not equivalent to uh giving their all and consistent with full integrity uh is treated harshly and rightly so i i think um you know there's an example in the cases of i mentioned the category six bets i didn't there weren't actually any of those in the cases there was one that could have been a category six bet it was a player who placed a spot bet on himself to score so it was technically a spot bet on involving himself technically a category six but everybody agreed that footballers want to score that's the goal of every footballer so it didn't have that kind of negative perception that goes with some other bets and it was treated as a, as a different category that's interesting i was thinking unless you know given some of the you know, remember if you've seen some of the um the videos that the likes of uh, Sport Radio and Genius put out in terms of some of the ca- the cases that they highlight in terms of some of the ridiculous goals that are scored <laughs> through, uh, through through spot fixing and stuff like that and match fixing. And, you know, unless he bribed the goalkeeper on the other team, and yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it much more. But they would have uh, spotted. All I mean, that. I've just been. That's really interesting. I've just been uh, speaking about those sort of crazy cases. I've just been. Um, looking at some of those uh, for, for, for a chapter I'm working on. And there are examples. I mean, there was one international friendly where the entire international team was substituted for a bunch of randoms. So they just had, I think, and then there was one where a goalkeeper sort of spiked his teammates' water bottles. Um, you know, really serious stuff. And that's when you get kind of people who have got, gambling problems falling into debt and going to extreme measures um and uh you know as you say the social issues that come with um with, with addiction um and were there any anything else that i've i've sort of missed in my questioning that you wanted to um highlight from the from the report and you know have you got a call for people who who read your report for any you know would you like feedback comments yeah i mean i'd, I'd love feedback and, and, and comments i've got a I've got a detailed kind of methodology that I've been through of how I've done each case and how I've um, when how I've divided seasons, how I've included people, excluded people, etc. Um, there's lots of kind of layers that I've thought about. So if anybody wants to question me on those, that would be great. Um, I think one of the things that the report goes into that we haven't spoken about yet is um, 
kind of average sanctions. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this was because that guidance uh, that I spoke about in the beginning with the different categories, that gives you a, a, a kind of recommend, that gives regulatory commissions, excuse me, a recommended sanctions range. Uh, and for some of the cases, the range is enormous. It's like six, for category four, for example, most serious cases, it's six months to life. And for a fr professional footballer, the difference between six months and life is the difference between missing missing a few games and never being able to make money from football again. Uh, so one of the reasons I did this was to look at averages and try and give a bit more guidance, if you like, to, to players and to participants about what they can expect and to see potentially where there are outliers as well. Because uh, identifying outliers is always dangerous because you never want to point fingers at anybody but um it, it's just it's an interesting exercise i think and uh you know interesting for people who are involved in these kind of cases to look at uh, absolutely so was was very relevant isn't it if you're arguing that you know that you know you, even if you accept that there was a offense committed but it should be on the lower end as you say it could be quite a, you know could have quite a significant impact on the individual well, it, it, exactly and uh, i'll talk about one of the particular cases in a minute and I'll, I'll just caveat it very quickly by saying um you know none of this is a criticism of anybody uh you know that regulatory commissions do a fantastic job but when you do see an outlier it's worth having a look at i think um and so the case i'll come on to averages a bit later but the case i want to talk about is is um joe barton which is probably the most famous of these kind of cases um and originally he he placed a large number of bets including uh, I think a dozen or maybe 15 bets against his own club. So he was in category four. Um, and category four can be divided again uh, because there are certain types of bets against your own club that are much, much more serious. And that's bets against your own club when you're playing in that game, when you have a ability to uh, affect the outcome of the game directly. Now, Joe Barton didn't place any of those bets so he didn't fall into that utmost seriousness category but he was still in category four for placing bets against his own team and at first instance he was given i think 18 or 19 month ban um, and on appeal that was reduced to 13 months um, uh, and that was because the committee hadn't taken into account some of the expert evidence on uh, Mr. Barton's problems with addiction uh, and so, so that was kind of the genesis of why I became interested in the addiction question because it should have been treated as a mitigating factor and ultimately his his ban was reduced because of that but even if even after that reduction you compare that ban to the average for category four cases which is just over six months um, and that there's obviously a difference there and so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of explore why that was different and whether there are other similar cases to compare it to um, and ultimately it does look a little bit like an outlier there were some aggravating factors in there that are pretty unique I think he'd been critical of the FA on Twitter um, which obviously didn't help his cause uh, <laughs> but um, you know doing an exercise like this and looking at the averages and looking at what other commissions have done allows you to then look back at a case like Barton and say perhaps that was a bit harsh no it's interesting yeah. but I think it's right to, to look at these you know and 
you know, without being in the hearing yourself and you know speaking to all the uh, individual parties, it's, diffi- it's difficult. But you can, you know, at least you can make your observations and you know ask the questions and maybe you'll provide better clarity going forward. I have to say, I think um, you know the the first article you wrote for us was that was excellent. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've told you before, so you know that. <laughs> He's like, okay, God, keep telling me. <laughs> um, yeah exactly so now you believe me you didn't believe me before (laughs) um but the the report is really interesting and and really worth going into it does make one uh sort of stop and think about how the rules are being applied and i also have to say that it you know from the fa's perspective i thought they come across really well in the report in the you know in the sense that they're doing a good job it seems uh investigating these type of cases bringing the bringing the um, uh, uh, cases forward for the hearing, um, you know, and from, as you're saying, on the educational standpoint. So I thought it was quite you know, interesting from that perspective. I thought there was going to be, to be honest with you, as you always do with these things, it's always easy to attack the, the whoever the whoever the body is, it doesn't matter if it's CAS or Sport Resolution or or whoever it is, wherever the hearing is and whoever the panel is, it's always easy from the sidelines to, to be critical. But it, it was quite a, a really informative report. And I do think it is, it's going to be interesting to see how this gets extrapolated over the next couple of years and you know, if these indications are that we're going to see many more of these cases. Um, and I guess we're getting better with the data. But look, if you are interested in this area, as we always say to people, the only, like Law and Sport doesn't pay for any advertising. Uh, we don't intend to. <laughs> um, we never have, never will. We don't pay people to write for us. We don't pay people to speak. They do it out of their free will because they believe in what we're doing, which is trying to educate people around the legal issues in sport making it accessible doing this sort of in-depth analysis you know we have independence we're able to do this the report's been anonymously peer-reviewed as well by our editorial board it's a great piece of work by Alistair so if you are interested in this please do either retweet you know comment put it on your LinkedIn but more importantly reach out to Alistair as we say to all the people who write for Laura in sport or the people on the podcast if you enjoy it please do let them know it's something that is so deeply appreciated particularly you know quick culture at the moment everyone's on to the next thing if you do take value from it please do reach out it means the world to people who spend time like Alistair has done doing this detailed analysis that someone actually out there finds it useful and I can say from Alistair's perspective I know that it's useful and I've flagged it to a few people already um, as you know so thank you Alistair for giving up your time I know that you're in the middle of traveling at the moment so uh, (laughs) really appreciate even more on a Friday afternoon thank you for having me Sean it's uh bucket list item to be on the podcast and hear that hear that baseline go at the beginning and then <laughs> this is why i like you this is why i like you because you listen to the podcast um <laughs> a man of good taste <laughs> those of you who listen to the podcast you know the outro look if you like what we do please do tell people about it you can follow us on linkedin itunes soundcloud instagram facebook twitter etc and remember for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport go to lawinsport.com and more, more importantly, wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful day, rest of your morning, evening, uh, whatever time of day it is. And thank you so much for tuning in.